Good morning, church. We're going to be reading, as Russ said, the next couple weeks, we're going to be doing a new sermon series out of the book of Colossians. Today we'll be in Colossians 1, and we'll be preaching through the book until the end of July at the family gathering. Before we dive into the text itself, we're going to go over a little historical information. It's going to give us some context and set up uh, some of the background details of what's going on, what led to the writing of the letter, that type of stuff. Let's bring up the first slide. So the city of Colossae, well, the city is at about 100 miles east of Ephesus, which is one of other Paul's prison letters. It's in the Lycus River Valley in what the scriptures call Asia. And Asia is just Roman nomenclature for the modern-day country of Turkey. Uh, the city was on the main highway. It acted as kind of a commercial and social hub. And uh, for hundreds of years before Christ came and before the writing of the letter, the city was uh, known for its vibrant wool and textile industry. But by the time Paul wrote, the city had waned in its commercial and social importance to the point that Roman historians will refer to as a small town, kind of a blip in the middle of nowhere. In the grand scheme of the empire, it was a very insignificant city, but significant to God because he had his people there. But what's really important for us to consider this morning, or one of those more important elements of the background information is that the Christian community in Colossae was not founded by Paul himself. The place he was writing to, he didn't actually go there. He didn't visit it. He didn't establish the church. There's no evidence Paul ever set foot in Colossae. In fact, he even mentions in his letter to them that they had yet to meet him in person and see him face to face. It seems that several Christian communities had come into existence during a period of vigorous missionary and evangelistic work during Paul's three years in Ephesus, as recorded in the book of Acts, chapter 19. The work being done was so mighty, as recorded in the scriptures, it says that all the residents of Asia, Turkey, heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And Colossians was also written during one of Paul's imprisonments. We're not 100% sure which one. Uh, Some suggest it was during Paul's Roman imprisonment at the end of Acts. Some say... It was an earlier one. Uh, It's even possible that it was during this stay in Ephesus, this three-year evangelistic boom that we just read, that is when he was put in prison again. Uh, The reason why this is important is because the letters to the Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon, they all bear strong textual evidence that they're written at the same time by the same person. Paul mentions he's in chains in them, and two of them, Ephesians and Colossians, both have the same mailman, the same delivery letter person, a guy named Tychicus, he's mentioned in both. The same names, the same helpers, like you know at the end of Paul's letters, he'll say, thank so-and-so for their help, or bless so-and-so for their ministry. A lot of those same people are listed in these three letters. So that's why we all believe they're written at the same time. But all that being said, what's really important, I think, for context is, uh, is that it is while in prison, while in this imprisonment, that Paul first receives word that there even is a Christian community in Colossae and the problems the church is facing specifically from what we can understand and reconstructing of the problems that they're dealing with is that some type of false teaching was threatening the church and it was threatening the faith by distorting the understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ himself. That's why this whole book is what is, has what we call contained in it high Christology. It's some of the most direct statements written by Paul the Apostle that pretty much directly says Jesus is God. It's like the unavoidable, if you read this book, you'll walk away and say, somehow you will come to the conclusion that this book is about the deity and supremacy of Jesus. 
Hence, our title slide for the sermon series is Colossians, the Supremacy of the Son. Everything Paul writes about to counter this teaching and encourage these Christians deals with the supremacy of Jesus, and it really pops out and begins in chapter 2. So as you go through the upcoming weeks, just think to yourself, how does the supremacy or the deity of Jesus, the fullness of who God is in this human man named Jesus, come together? How does this deal with what, how does this resolve the problems that church was facing? And this leads, though, to our preaching question this morning. So Paul's in prison. He didn't know this community existed, to our understanding. And he gets word of them that they exist and what they're going through. So the preaching question for this morning is how did this man in chains, how did Paul the Apostle react upon hearing about the Colossian church? Let's read together Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. That'll give us our first answer. Colossians 1, 1 begins this way. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this, the hope you just mentioned, You have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed the whole world. It is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. The first thing Paul does upon hearing about the Colossian church is to give credit to where credit is due. He gives thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for everything goes according to the will of the Father. Jesus told us that not a sparrow falls from the clouds. You know, not not even a little animal or bird dies. Not even the rain comes unless God the Father somehow ordains or wills it. So he is willing to recognize and give thanks to these things. And specifically, in this first portion of the opening, verses 1 through 8, I think there are three elements Paul has in mind as he's giving thanks to the sovereignty of God the Father. The first thing he gives thanks for is the actual conversion of the Colossians themselves, that, that they accepted the gospel. And just to be clear, when we say the gospel, gospel means good news, and it's the good news that Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection for the sins of man. So Paul says in verse 3 through 5, this first element he has in mind, but then why he's thanking God says this, that we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this, the hope, you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. The faith and love the Colossians had was founded on the hope that is contained in the gospel. And it's this confident hope that flows from the good news of the gospel that declares that God in his infinite goodness and greatness has made a way for sinful people, sinful man, you and me, the people of this world, to be made right with him, thereby permanently securing an eternal future for all who believe with their good and faithful creator. It is this hope, though, this hope that we have that only really comes to full fruition with the return of the object of our hope, Jesus Christ, our King himself. Paul tells Titus 
In Titus 2.13, he says, we, being Christians, he goes, we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The return of Jesus Christ from heaven is the pivotal event that fixes this broken world, and it's what we Christians should be aching for every day, down to our bones and the depths of our spirit. We should groan and ache for the return of our Lord Jesus, because when Jesus returns, he will cleanse the world of all its sin and brokenness, and death itself will become a fleeting memory. Evil will no longer exist, and God and man will be united together forever. Our salvation will be complete and the story of redemption will come to a climactic, dramatic, and triumphant close. God will be all and in all and reign supreme forever. And it's this hope, this sure promise of a better and complete future. Because our Christian hope is not that wishy-washy, just hoping for things. I know it's like self-definition, but like how many times does someone say, oh, well, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow, or I hope this doesn't happen, or I hope I win the lottery. They're just, it's like wishful thinking. This is not that. This is absolute, concrete, matter-of-fact. God, who has ordained the beginning from the end, has already declared this will come to pass. It is a surefire thing. There is no other way this will come out and play out. So it's this hope, this sure promise of a better and complete future is why, Christ, why the Colossians and really all Christians of all time have faith. And the word faith just means to trust and love one another. That is it's because the hope we have of this sure future that we have love and hope or love and faith, according to Paul. Hope is our grounding, if you will. It enables love and faith to flourish. And the relationship between these three virtues, faith, hope, and love, I think it's something like this, is that like, if hope has the end in mind, this factual hope, it grants us the attitude and the heart posture that says, regardless of what happens to me in this life, God has the end already completed. He's already made it a fact. Therefore, God is trustworthy. I can have faith. And through the uncertainty of life, I can definitely trust God because I know the end of the story. I know how things will turn out. It's going to be okay. And then whatever grievances we have towards one another or whatever suffering we face or trials or persecutions or tribulations, all that stuff, uh, we continue to love God because he first loves us. And we continue to love one another. And we know that one day we're going to spend eternity together forever. This love that we have, I mean, I still think it's kind of a joke, but think about this. There's people in this room you might not like people you've been going to church with for a long time that you're like, you know, I really don't like so-and-so. Well, you're going to be with them forever, so you really should learn to fall in love with them sooner than later because they will be with you forever. Forever. So that's why Christians, we are called to forgive one another, love one another, forgive as the Lord God forgave you. And it's a struggle and it's a challenge because we're sinful and stiff-necked people sometimes. But we're called to love one another. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, your entire person, and love your neighbor as yourself. These are the greatest commandment and the second greatest commandment. And love, it's a choice. It's, it's a loyalty, if you will. So God loved us, and he commands us to love one another. And with that hope in mind of a better future, we love and encourage one another. So together, these three virtues, faith, hope, and love, with love being the greatest, 
They are what remains in our lives. First Corinthians 14, Paul tells us that they surpass any other spiritual gift or any other calling, anything else we do in the Christian life. Faith, hope, and love form the center of it. And these virtues, they come from believing the gospel. So when Paul hears this report about the Colossian church, he praises God the Father because it is them rightly responding to the word of truth, which is only possible because the Lord allows it, because the Lord has called them. It should fire us up. It should encourage our hearts. It should get us, wake us up in the morning to think that people are getting saved. We should have a heart for missions. It should be the thing that makes us tick, so to speak. People hearing the gospel and believing it. That is always praiseworthy of the Lord, knowing that people can't believe the gospel without the Holy Spirit moving on them. It's the work of the Lord. We should be praising God for these things. We should get fired up about them. And I think that's why Paul begins his letter this way. And the second element is that this, he's given thanks to God for is that not only the, did the Colossians receive salvation, but salvation was going out and creating a storm in the Roman world. The gospel was going out, powerfully going out, and it has been ever since the day of the apostles. Verse 6 says this, The gospel which has come to you, you Colossians, as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. The message of Jesus Christ, it was, it was spreading. It was causing a storm. People were getting saved. It was changing people. It was changing eternal destinies, changing lives, families, even society itself. When you read the book of Acts, when people start getting saved and they abandon idol worship, it threatened the status quo. Think of, um, I forget what chapter it is, but I'm pretty sure it's in Ephesus. People that would make idols, little statues to worship, silversmiths. There was a time when so many Christians stopped worshiping. They're no longer supplying the need for these little statues. It threatened the livelihood of the craftsmen. What do you think they did to Paul? He was preaching something that was hurting them financially. It caused an uproar. The gospel will cause conflict in society because it causes people to change and change what they think, feel, and believe in how they live. But all of this, though, people getting saved and things changing, it's because this is just Jesus fulfilling his promise in the Great Commission. The end of Matthew's Gospel, the Great Commission, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus was making good on his promise according to God the Father and his will. And throughout the entire book of Acts, this, um, this idea of growth and evangelism is so frequent that it becomes what we would call... Uh, Literary markers. So as you read the book of Acts, this phrase will come up. It will repeat itself throughout the whole book. It's how we can even diagram and outline the book of Acts. When a phrase is repeated in Scripture, it's because God's drawing our attention that this is the bulk of what it's about. So some form or some way, a phrase like this comes up multiple times. And I have a, here's a small sample of them. But with the idea of evangelism and the gospel going out, Acts 2.47 says, The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Acts 6-7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly. Acts 12-24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. 
Acts 13.49. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Acts 19.20. And the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And there are more. There are a lot more. And, but you get the idea. Like the gospel was going out. People were changing. Lives were changing. And this is all according to God the Father's working. This is because God has to do the work of saving people. And people were hearing the love and hope of Jesus and eternal destinies were changed. And all of this, God's will, is because that's the reason he sent Jesus. He sent Jesus Christ for this very reason, to seek and save the lost, those who are outside of God's will, those who are living in rebellion to him. God wants those people. And that's all of us at one point before we hear the gospel. That's you and that's me. No one is born Christian. That's, that is just not true. You become Christian by believing the gospel. And in Luke 15, Jesus tells us three parables about this special mission that God had ordained for the fullness of the times in Christ. The parable of the lost sheep, the missing coin, and the most famous, the prodigal son. We've almost, almost everybody in this room has probably heard and can recite it to us in some way. But they all have a similar meaning. God rejoices when sinners repent, turn from sin, and get saved. God gets fired up about this. God gets pleasure and rejoices. Heaven itself rejoices when people who are rebelling against God all of a sudden have the scales fall from their eyes and they recognize who God is and who they are and what their need really is. Repentance and trust and faith. That gets God fired up. That gets the heart of the Father fired up. That should get us likewise fathered up. And God to this day is still in the mission of seeking and saving the lost. That's God's business. He's still about that. And therefore, like I said earlier, but when we hear of people receiving Jesus Christ, when we hear of the work of missions, when we do our mission bulletins out there or on our bulletin board, or we talk and missionaries come up here, that should get us fired up. That should not just be the, uh, the point of the service where you can check out and get on your phone and do other things. And, oh, that's just announcements. We should get fired up about missions. We should get fired up about lost people hearing the gospel and believing it. That is very critical to the heart of God. It should fill our souls with praise for him, like Paul is. He's thanking God that the Colossians, praise God, you heard it, Colossians, and believe it. And praise God that this same gospel that you believed and heard is going out into the entire Roman world. Praise the Lord for these things. And we ourselves should be thanking God that we get to be partaking in that same mission. God is keeping his promises to seek and save that which is lost. So does your soul get fired up when people make the good confession, when missionaries go out, when they come back and bring their reports? Does that get you fired up? Do you live and breathe for mission? And it's also noteworthy, as Paul is giving thanks for this gospel changing the Colossians and the gospel going out, he also makes a special note of that when the gospel changes people, some are called to be its full-time servants. While everybody who's converted, who believes in Jesus, is called to participate in mission, we all are, but not all to the same degree. Many of us, when we're called, we're called to continue to live out our normal jobs, our normal lives, and it's all for God's glory. You know, we still need bakers and bankers and baristas, because I clearly can't make my own coffee. So we need those people, and that's great. There's nothing wrong with continuing your normal life, because that's probably what God has ordained for you. I mean, we think about the clan, you know, the iconic, think of, I get the picture in my head, if you lived a couple hundred years ago and you heard the gospel and you're a farmer, what's the most likely thing you're going to keep doing every day? Farming, right? You're going to keep doing what you do because that's your job. That's your lot in life. That's what you've been called to do. Totally fine. 
But God does call some people out to serve him and abandon their labors and be dedicated to solely partake in God's labors. And I think Paul has this in mind while he's giving thanks in this section because he specifically mentions this guy named Epaphras. In verse 7, in this length of section about giving thanks, he says, verse 7, Just as you learned it, the gospel, from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. He's the guy, Epaphras, is the evangelist, who we believe got converted under Paul's ministry, was so radically changed by it that when he went home to his hometown of Colossae, he planted a church there. To our knowledge, he forsook all. He became an evangelist. He even came back to Paul in prison to bring the report of this missionary work and the problems the church is facing. He is responsible for this. And Paul calls him a fellow servant. He's saying, this guy, Epaphras, he's like us. He understands. He's dedicated to the mission. He is forsaking his labors to partake in the labors that God's given me also. He understood that God was raising up other leaders than him. And that's a part of what Paul is rejoicing and giving thanks that his work, his evangelistic efforts, was raising up other people to take those same efforts. Because Paul's in prison right now. It's hard for Paul to be an evangelist when he can't get out of prison. So he praises God for this work. And again, while all God's people, everyone who calls upon the name of Jesus, we're all valuable to the Lord. And your work is still dedicated to the Lord. So if you're a banker or whatever, it's like that's still your job, your life, your family, it's still dedicated to the Lord. It's still holy. Still do those labors. But God does choose some to serve the gospel exclusively. And we should thank God when this happens. Because this is a work of the Lord. When people sit down and make those moment of decisions, when they feel that gospel call that says, God, I've got to get all in. I've got to leave my job, and I will pursue the labor you've put in front of me. We, the church, should lift up those people, support in them, invest in them. That's why we give money to missions. That's why you know, Aaron took time for Martin and I to send us out to do this gospel work. It's because this is how God continues to keep the gospel moving forward. And as an example, or an uh, application, I thought of this, especially working in youth ministry. Parents, you should celebrate if your child comes to you and says, you know what, I want to quit secular college and dedicate my life to the ministry. I have heard Christian parents, whether at camp or just in talking circles or horror stories I've heard from other kids, that their parents dissuade them from pursuing a gospel vocation. That should not be. That should fire any Christian parent up when their kid turns to them and says, Mom and Dad, I don't want to be a systems engineer. I don't want to be a doctor or a lawyer, especially in middle-class suburbia, where our goal is normally to get people to be comfortable. Like, we want our kids to not be poor, right? That's usually what we think. And ministry normally is a not well-paid job. So therefore, parents go, when they hear that, that their kids are going to pursue some gospel call, they're normally like... Yeah, you're going you're gonna to be poor and you know, your mom and I don't want that. We want you to live like you're living under our roof and we're not okay if you, know, you don't make you know, six figures or whatever, you know, fill in the blank. It's like, if that is our heart attitude, we need to repent. You should be so proud and excited if your son or daughter stands up and says, Mom and Dad, there's nothing else for me. I need to pursue this ministry that God has laid on my heart. Whatever that looks like, it should get you fired up. 
Because God is the one that has to do this convincing. He's the one that does this call. And your son or your daughter, I promise you, even if they don't fully recognize that the money that life takes and having kids and all that, do you trust that God's going to take care of them? That God will support them in the way they need to be supported? And if you don't, then you need to do a heart check. He will take care of them. Your children will be okay. Encourage them in their vocation if they have one. Don't be afraid. No one takes this honor upon themselves. God has to call them out. He's got to do the convincing. We want to encourage that, whatever that looks like. Or maybe you've been working at a regular job. You know, maybe you're a chemist or something and you're sampling oils and lubricants for some lane petroleum company and then God calls you out of your safe zone and now you are faced with that dreaded decision to forsake your labors, just like the apostles. Remember, some of them were fishermen. They had businesses, wives, and families. And what do you think it was like for them to come home and say, Honey, surprise, you know, we got a new job. We're following this guy named Jesus from Nazareth. And he says he's the Messiah. You know, I wonder what those conversations Peter had with his wife looked like. You know, the Bible doesn't tell us, but think about that. When the gospel call comes on your life, even wherever you're at in life now, it can happen at any age. God might say, today's the day you need to start making plans to leave your job and to serve me full time. Whether it's missions overseas, planning a church, being an elder pastor, whatever. This can look in a bunch of different ways, but there are times when God will say, Today is the day your life fully belongs to me in your vocation. You know, God already owns our lives, but there are times when God says, enough, trust me, I will show you the way you are to go, and I will bless your labors because I'm the one doing the work. And it can be scary. It really can be scary. But I promise you, hear me on this, I promise you that is you. God will take care of you and your family. He'll take care of your mortgage. He'll take care of your bills. He'll take care of you. He promises he will. He promises to take care of those who serve him. He did it in the Old Testament for the priests, and he says the same thing in the New Covenant. 1 Corinthians 9.14 says that the Lord has commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Do not doubt that God will take care of you if you are to leave your job to serve him full time. And if that is you, trust the Lord in these matters, because most of us, you know it, because the Spirit will stir your heart. You'll recognize, like, you know what? I, I just can't do this fill in the blank now. I can't do this job anymore. I think God's calling me. You'll get that burden. You'll, you'll think about it. And you'll be like, man, God is he's calling me, I think. And talk with your spouse. Talk with your church elders. They are God's divine instrument in your life to help you sort out these thoughts and feelings to see if you're called. That's what they're here to help you to do, to launch you into ministry. But all of this, whatever that looks like in that life, when God raises up leaders... We should be thanking God for that. That should get us excited because that is, again, a work of the Lord. People don't do this on their own power. People don't sit down and wake up and then think, you know what? I'm just going to quit my job today. It's like that's rarely how it goes. It's a process of God convincing us and encouraging and leading us to pursue him and abandon our other labors. And if that happens, we should keep an eye out for those people and be praying for them. Pray for that to be in God's will and encourage them to not be afraid. So, Paul's first reaction upon hearing about the Colossian church is he gives thanks to God. He gives thanks to God for his work in them. He gives thanks for God's work in the world. And he gives thanks that the, he was raising up other fellow laborers, other workers like Epaphras. But his second reaction 
is to pray for them. Let's read verses 9 through 14. And so from the day we heard of their faith, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He, the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You know, of all the things Paul could be praying for, it is very telling what he does not pray for. He does not pray for their health, their wealth, or even their happiness. He does not pray for their protection or their security, and he does not pray for political power or authority or to have favor with Roman emperors or royalty. He prays for none of those things. But he does pray that the Colossians would know God's will for their lives. What he phrases to be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That is what is on the heart of Paul. That is what he is praying for. And spiritual wisdom and understanding, that's just another way of saying to know who God is and how we Christians are to live out our salvation in obedience to God's word. And as simple as that may sound, spiritual wisdom and understanding, they are outside the purview of the unregenerate person the non-Christian, also called the natural man in scriptures. Hear this uh, contrast Paul has between believers and unbelievers and discerning God's will and spiritual things. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 12 says this, Now we, Christians, have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly or foolishness to him. And he is not, think about that, he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. That portrait is pretty telling. Christians are to know, care, and obey the truth. But those who are outside of Christ think what we are doing right now, what we think, believe, what we're doing on a beautiful Sunday morning, they think this is stupid. They think you're stupid. I mean, people might be respectful to your face, but really, they think this is crazy and ludicrous, right? Non-Christians think what we're doing is, is just crazy, that we believe this stuff. I don't think many of my friends have the audacity to my face to tell me how dumb they think what I believe really is. But if we could peel back the layers of their heart, it's probably pretty true, right? They think this is a bunch of nonsense. The scripture just told us so. And sometimes they don't just think that we're stupid for believing this book that's written 2,000 years ago, written by a man and is chauvinistic and you know, hates women and hates homosexuals, like all that stuff we hear all the time, right? on the news, on all these channels, that's, that's what they say about us. They believe that about us. It's not true, but they do. They even believe that we're evil, which is the insane part. 
And from Roman emperors and philosophers in the days of late antiquity, like Paul's time and all that, to the philosophers like Voltaire and Nietzsche in the modern period, up to the modern scientism of Richard Dawkins and other trend-setting atheists, um, there will always be a loud and angry opposition to the truth of the gospel. There always will. But we Christians must know and do the will of the Father, even if it puts us at odds with these people and puts us in their crosshairs. We have to. For Jesus said in Matthew 7:21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day, Jesus talking about his return, many of you all will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then Jesus responds to those people. He says, and in that day when that happens, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. When Jesus Christ returns, the hearts of man will be laid bare and it'll fully reveal who we are and what we think. Therefore, knowing and doing the will of God is essential to the Christian life. I mean, there is no Christian life separate from doing the will of the Father. That is like, there is, that's like a, it literally makes no sense to not say that could be possibly true. I mean, think about this. I used this in the first sermon. I hope it still kind of makes sense as I've been thinking about it since pancakes. But like, how silly it would be and how delusional you would think I am if I told you with absolute heart passion said, guys, guys, I am a member. What, what sports teams do we like these days? Russ, what's a good sports team? Okay, I'm a part of the Chiefs. I don't know anything about sports. But I'm like, I'm a part of the Chiefs. And I'm on the team. And you're like, you clearly don't have the the form for that and you don't jersey you don't go to practice like you do none of those things what and i'm like no you don't get it i'm a part of the chief and i the worst part is if i really believe that you would say something is wrong with me how much more than do people who say they are christian don't believe the bible and live in absolute contradiction to it we would say there's something not right we would say that's absurd and that might seem like slightly funny but many people who sit in the pews on sunday morning live their lives just like that they say one thing, and, they believe, and that's the worst thing, they believe it. They might believe they're Christian, but when their lives are in total conflict and opposition to the gospel and to the word of God that's so plainly and clearly revealed, you've got to step back and be like, whoa, something is wrong with this person, that they, they believe that about themselves when it's not true. Jesus is warning us about being like that. There is no Christian life separate from knowing and doing God's will. There's only death and darkness, and that is not God's will for you this morning to be like that, to be self-deceived. Self-deception is the worst deception, and may God have mercy on us from that. But I think because this deception is possible, I think it's the very reason why Paul's prayers, he's praying for them, why he's praying for them. The what is that they would know and do God's will, but the why is that so our lives would be pleasing to God. Because I don't think, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir right now, but think about this. You and I do not live for our own will or our own desires. You did not make yourself. You know, it's like when we do the tracing back, your parents were made by somebody else, made by somebody else, go all the way back. God made everything. You were made by God and for God. And because of that, 
You exist for God's good pleasure. Your life, your marriage, your job, everything about you that you think you're made for, you are made for God's glory. You are made for God's good pleasure. You are made to be one of God's trophies in a sense. God made you for himself, not for you. Your life does not belong to you. And it is in God alone that we live and move and have our being. So, God, so Paul, he's praying for the Colossians. He just told us what he's praying for, that the Colossians would know and do God's will. And he told us the why he's praying. Because their lives, and by consequence, our lives, are to be pleasing to the Lord. And now he gives us three specifics of what that really looks like being played out. Three specifics, I think, of what a life pleasing to God looks like. Let's look at verse 10 for the first element. The first aspect of a life pleasing to God, doing the will of God, is that we are to bear fruit and increase in the knowledge of God. And this is just another way of describing our ongoing growth in God's grace. It is a life conformed and committed to repentance, turning from evil, and doing the good works prescribed by God. And it's all founded, though, on the study of the Scriptures. To grow in the knowledge of God is to grow in the Scriptures. You can't sit under a tree and then say, God, teach me who you are. And he's going to like, someone will walk up and hand you a Bible and say, well, here's God's answer. It's contained in the Word. We all have the same revelation given to us. The Old and New Testament complete Word of God is God's disclosure of himself to his people for all time and all places everywhere of all time. The end. The only way to know the Lord is to know the Word of God. And from then, our lives reflect how much we know him. So much so, Paul tells his protege Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16. This is one of those Awana verses that every Christian everywhere should have memorized. But it says that all scripture, not some scripture, all scripture, not the scripture you don't like, not the scripture that you cherry pick because it makes sense to you, it's in your devotional. All scripture, even the genealogy list that you probably skipped this morning reading Leviticus. All of it. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, complete, and equipped for every good work. Scripture does that. Everything in our Christian lives, my friends, and you know it and I know it, and I don't think anybody has to tell you this, because you think it'd be one of those assumed truths that we have that, man, Christians should read the Bible. That seems to be a pretty, like, accepted norm, right? And yet, for some reason... The intake of scripture is like the most little thing God's people tend to do. When they do those Gallup polls and they'll survey like a, you know, thousands of people and ask them how often they read or go to church and all that, we know the numbers are abysmally low. And they've been on the decline for 100 years now, or however since they've been doing Gallup polls. But it just keeps showing us that like the reality is that Christians less and less and less and less, and these are people that are self-identifying who come to church just like you are right now, they self-identify as Christians, aren't reading the Bible. It's a peculiar thing. It's a wrong thing. It is God's will for you to be in the Word of God. We're not going to set a daily number or page count or chapter count or anything like that, but the heartbeat of your life needs to include, in the same way you eat bread, God said man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes out of his mouth. Your life has to be centered on intake of Scripture somehow because it's how you know your Savior. It's how you know God's will. And everything else Paul's going to talk about, the remaining two other items 
of specific examples of a life pleasing to God hinge upon the intake of the word. So again, it seems fundamental, but I think Paul's praying for the Colossians here that they would grow in the knowledge of God is because our flesh and its self-centered, self-seeking tendency doesn't necessarily want to get confronted with Scripture. There's something about our fallen remnant that we still have that looks at Scripture and goes, I know it's important, but I'm not going to do it. You ever have those days when you sit down to read the Word and it's like your mind is just flipping the channels and you can't focus and you're trying to read the Bible and you walk away and you're like, I just can't today. I have those moments where my mind feels like an undisciplined child. It just keeps going and going and going and going and I can't focus. And then what happens in one day becomes two and then the stress of life where your kids are yelling at you or you fought with your husband or you hate your job, fill in the blank, the pressures of life stack up and next thing you know you haven't touched God's work in a week, in a month maybe a year. These things are real and they happen and they should not be so. That is why Paul is praying for them because our natural tendency is to drift away from God. Our flesh will pull us away from God and it's hard to combat that. And it's weird, it's like the medicine we need is the medicine we avoid. And then the worse and worse it gets on some level. So we need accountability. It's good to have your spouse ask you, did you read the word? It's good when you ask your kids, what do you read in the Bible? It's good to do family worship, all those things. And it's good when your elder asks you, how have you been in the word lately? We can honestly tell the spiritual state of somebody, how healthy they are spiritually, their walk with God, how they're living, by the intake of their word, by the intake of scripture, how they process it, how they meditate on it. So do not, as Paul's praying for the Colossians, we're praying for each other, to do God's will is to be in God's word because that's how you figure out his will and it's his will already to be in the word. So it's a complete cycle. Do not neglect the reading and meditating of scripture. It's necessary for a life pleasing to God. And the second example of a life pleasing to God is endurance. Verse 11 says this, Christians are to be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. You know, this thing called endurance, it's not of the physical variety. It isn't doing more push-ups or decreasing your mile minute. It's of a spiritual nature. It is sticking to the faith when times are tough or persecution arises. In Matthew 13, Jesus gives us the famous parable of the seeds, parable of the sower, and he describes various scenarios of how people, when they first hear the word, how they live in the outcome of their lives. It's Matthew 13. And one of them, one of the categories of people, are what he describes as, seed that falls upon the rocks and it's describing that person who lacks spiritual endurance so here the outcome of that person who lacks spiritual endurance Matthew 13 20 says this and this is Jesus' explanation of that parable he goes as for what was sown on rocky ground this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy yet he has no root in himself but endures for a while And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. You know, people hear, and they will hear about the forgiveness of Christ, and they'll get excited. Man, I've seen it, and you all probably know somebody like this. They'll hear about this, you'll bring them to church, maybe a friend, and they'll hear about the gospel, and they'll be coming for a while, and things seem great, and they seem to be like, oh man, I think this person's getting saved, I think they're moving towards Jesus. And then all of a sudden, the first bit of pressure can come along and they will forsake everything to be accepted by the world. 
And this can occur due to government pressures, social pressures, family pressures, personal relationships like a girlfriend or a boyfriend, uh, friends in your, you know, your social circles, maybe even at your workplace, around the water fountain or in the break room or who you share a cubicle with, etc. You know, it happens in a variety of ways, but the end result is always the same. That person will leave Jesus. They'll forsake him to avoid hostility or being rejected. The end of that person is worse than the beginning. The book of Hebrews, the whole book of Hebrews is founded on that truth. That people, he's encouraging them to not fall away. And it comes to a climax in chapter 10 on this argument. In chapter 10 of the book of Hebrews, gives us a very, very clear warning about turning away from the faith. Because, my friends, there is nothing for you outside of Jesus Christ. There is nothing for you. There is no more forgiveness available. Jesus is the climax of history. He is the guy. There is nothing else for you. There's nowhere to turn. There's no hope. There's no nothing outside of Jesus Christ, especially if you claim to know him. Where else will you go? Who else has the words of life? What else will you do? The apostles were faced with the same thing when John chapter 6, I believe, uh, all the people left Jesus and he turns to them, he goes, turns to the apostles, he goes, will you leave me also? And Peter says, Jesus, where else are we going to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. You are the guy. There's nothing else for us. There's nothing else for people. And the author of Hebrews, after giving that clear warning, reminding them there is no more sacrifice for sins. Jesus is it. He's the last and greatest. Like uh, when Joshua John, when Jesus did the sign of the wine in Cana at the wedding, and the wedding master comes out, and he goes, man, you saved the best wine for last. That is because Jesus is the last and best. There is no more. This is it. Jesus Christ. And the author then reminds his readers in that same chapter about warning them from turning from Jesus. He goes, you need encouragement. You need to hold on to the faith. And he tells them in chapter 10, verse 32, he says, after warning them, he goes, but recall the former days. After you were enlightened, or after you heard the gospel, after you believed it, after you came to faith, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. And sometimes you were publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. And sometimes you were partners with those who were so treated. And you had compassion on those in prison. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one, like talking about that hope. He goes, you were willing to suffer because you understood what the hope in Jesus Christ really is, that there is a happy ending for God's people. The world may go crazy, but Jesus Christ is our happy ending. And he goes, goes on, he goes, therefore, don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance. He's telling his readers, you have need for endurance. So that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised, eternal life. And then he quotes the uh, prophet Habakkuk. And this is his reason for why he's telling them all this. He goes, for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. And now God speaking, he goes, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, remember this is God speaking through the prophet, he goes, my soul God's soul, God's person, he goes, has no pleasure in that person. God has no pleasure in those who shrink back from him. Because essentially they're calling God a liar. To not have faith is to call God a liar. And the author of Hebrews, he ends his 
moment there and he goes, but we Christians are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but are those who have faith and preserve their souls. That's what endurance is. Endurance is the preservation of your soul. It's sticking close to Jesus, even though our flesh tends to wander. Because in our own power, we lack spiritual endurance. You lack spiritual endurance. I lack spiritual endurance. And it is important that you and I learn not to trust ourselves. You've already proven that you can't be trusted because before your conversion, how did you live? Even as a child, even if you heard the gospel at a young age, you've proven the track record is very complete in God's eyes. You and I, we sin. We make it very clear that we turn away from God because of sin, hence our need for salvation. So if you ever think that you can live the Christian life in your own power, somehow you're misunderstanding of what the Holy Spirit really does in your life of how God really works. God has not given you a set of moral precepts to believe. He's given you life itself to live and obey him. You cannot live and obey God without God's help. Salvation is of the Lord. And that's why I think Paul was praying for them in this, to understand it's God's will for you to recognize you can't live the life God has for you without his help. We need God to build us up. And lastly, a life pleasing to God, the third element A life pleasing to God includes thanking the Father for his work of salvation in our lives. Verse 12 through 14 says this, as he's praying for them, he goes, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you, not you qualified yourself, who God has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He, the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. This last element of doing the will of God, of a life pleasing to God, forms a bracket with the beginning of our section this morning. It parallels verse 3, the opening, thanksgiving, and a close to a prayer are essentially the same. Because Paul's initial reaction upon hearing about the Colossians and their faith was to give thanks to the Father. He's now praying for them, essentially, to be like him to give thanks, to learn to give thanks to the Father. Because the third mark of a life pleasing to God is to give continual thanks for the salvation we have received. Of this salvation, God has qualified us. We give thanks because you did not save yourself. You don't come to Jesus on your own terms. It's when God confronts you and your life, wherever you're at, even right now in your chair, and he comes before you and he says, will you believe me today? Will you trust me today? Will you let go of your life today? Will you receive me as your king today? That is an act of God's grace. It's an act of God's grace that we are saved. We were once enemies of God, demonstrated by our wicked thoughts and deeds, but we now have been transferred by an act of God's grace. God changed our club membership, changed our citizenship. You once were on team A, and now you're on team B. You're on the winning team now if you've trusted in Jesus. You've been transferred into the kingdom of Christ by believing the gospel. You once served a brutal and unloving master, the world, the flesh, and above all, the devil. But now you serve a good and faithful and righteous king, Jesus the Christ, who loved us and laid down his life for us and for our sake took it back up again and now is seated high above all authority and principality and power and he's seated at the right hand of God the Father waiting to come back. Again, we give God our thanks for this hope.
All of this is a work of the Father. For God said to Moses in Exodus 33:19, He says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. So then it depends not on him who wills or him who runs, but on God who has mercy. It is this very mercy and redemption that had been extended to the Colossian believers, and it's still extended to us today. It is why we praise God. It is why we sing the Song of Moses we learned last week in all of its various forms and expressions. It's why we sing this morning. The words may be different, but the heartbeat of all of our worship is the same. Moses put it for us very well when he says, The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. All three of these specific elements can really just be summarized as a prayer for maturity. That's all this really is. It's a prayer for maturity, to know God's will as revealed in the scriptures and to do it empowered by the Holy Spirit. And this is how we should be praying for each other, how parents should be praying for their children, how spouses should pray for one another. In the same way you know the Lord's Prayer, learn to pray like this, because think about this. When you pray scripture like this, you are praying the very will of God. You are praying perfectly because you're praying God's very word over people. Learn to pray in this fashion, and it's how we're going to close this morning is by praying like this for each other. So let's take a moment. Let's bow our hearts, bow our heads before the Lord, and let's seek the Lord together on these things. Father God, we come before you, Lord, and as Paul says, we give thanks to you, for you are the Lord of salvation. You've worked this in our hearts. You transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. You saved us, and you sent your Son, and you invite us to be a part of this great work. But specifically, Lord, we pray for our own maturity at CBC. We pray for maturity in our individual lives. I pray, Lord, that we here this morning would know the knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that we as a people may walk worthy of you and that our lives and our church would be pleasing to you and that we would bear fruit in every good work and we would increase in the knowledge of who you are. And we pray for endurance, Lord, to not fall away from you, that you would encourage us in the days ahead. And wherever anybody's at now, Lord, if they're just holding on by just a thread, if they're just thinking in their hearts, I just can't follow Jesus anymore today. I just can't do it. Lord, I pray that you would hold on tight to them and remind them that they cannot. But with God, all things is possible. Lord, we thank you for this. We thank you for your salvation. We thank you for your son. We thank you for your spirit. Continue to work in our hearts. Help us love you like you deserve and prepare us now as we take your supper. In Jesus' name, amen.